Hi everybody, I'm Ralph Ben Mergy. This is Not That Kind of Rabbi. Um, not That Kind of Rabbi is now not just Ralph Ben Mergy, it's also Avram Rosen's wife. We're doing stuff together these days. And uh, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. I'm just coming off about a COVID, um, which seems to be uh, making its way around. But it went very quickly, and that makes me very happy. Very yes. happy. Yes. Well, you know, uh, everybody who's got their shots usually has minimal effects these days. Some people right. still don't, though. I mean, I'm still shocked to see uh, how many people die, in, even in the province of Ontario, how many people die from COVID in a week, you know, 54, 72 of them. And so it's not nothing. And I know we all want it to go away. But wanting something to go away doesn't mean it goes away. So it's a very true. Stay vigilant is what I would uh, offer people. I know everyone's not wearing masks most often these days. And after three years, mentally, you just want to get on with it and feel normal again. So I get it. Um, well, I don't know when people will be listening to this, but we're doing this just before the beginning of the Jewish high holidays. And those things, it means different things to everybody, the high holidays. Uh, for some people, it was the part that turned them on. And for some people, it was the part that turned them off. I remember the idea that you had to buy a ticket for the high holidays. And thinking to myself, you know, when I was a kid, you would go down to... Uh, uh, College Street on the subway in Toronto to Maple Leaf Gardens for a hockey game and the scalpers would be yelling down into the uh, stairwell as you're coming up, who's got tickets? Who's got tickets? Right. Who wants goals? Who wants goals? Right. And, and I think to myself, when these big synagogues, these I, I used to call them the big box synagogues in Toronto, um, they'd fill up on the high holidays and people would pay. So I changed my mind a bit about that when I, I belonged to a small synagogue for over 20 years in Toronto, the first arriver congregation down on Brunswick Avenue. And uh, on high holidays, we had to rent the uh, JCC, the Bluer Y, Bluer and Spadina, right. yeah. for everybody to be in the gymnasium. And after a while, I started to think, you know what, these people who paid for these tickets they are making sure that we have funding for the next year. So for the 50 to 75 people who show up every Saturday, on behalf of them, I, I say thank you to all those people who, right. yeah, they only yeah. showed up for, a, you know, a one day of Rosh Hashanah, the morning service maybe, and the night of Yom Kippur and um, uh, Colton Idre, and that'd be it, they'd be gone. But I just thought, you know what, you're, you're doing your thing, you're keeping your your bookmark in there, your tab in there. And if that's the way you do it, that's the way you do it. So I stopped, I stopped thinking of it in the same way. What was your yeah, experience? No, I, 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 no, I agree with you hundred percent. I, I think that it's a misnomer to say that, you know, well, this is disgusting that they're charging me to come to shul or synagogue or temple. Well, it's not because generally you pay for most things that you have to uh, enter into. And you're right. I think the fundamental piece is this is a synagogue. It's a movement. It's a corporation. It requires funding in order to keep it going. And I saw that firsthand. My father was a rabbi in Kitchener. Um, and the expenses are uh, tremendous. You know, if the boiler goes, somebody's got to pay for it. So I agree with you. I think your change in thinking was what uh, was accurate. I once had a situation, however, when I went to uh, shul on the high holidays and i hadn't purchased a ticket it was a sephardic shul actually <laughs> and, and i come to the front door and the fellow says could i have your ticket please i said oh i'm so sorry i i don't have a ticket he said well then you can't come in i said but somebody told me that i could he said oh who told you you could i said god <laughs> <laughs> he said well i'm sorry you still can't come in um so I didn't, but I think the vast majority of shuls, including that shul, I'm sure, um, will let people in if they hadn't paid. I think there is a generosity of spirit that you will find at synagogues. Well, you would hope so, because in essence, if someone is in a situation where they say, I didn't, I don't have a yeah. ticket, 
right. uh, who are we to turn them away on that day? Now, Correct. if, if yeah. 120 people show up and say, I don't have a ticket, you've got a different issue. You've probably charged too much for the ticket. That, that might be. Yeah, that, that might be. And that doesn't happen. You know, no, no, it doesn't happen. Occasionally, no. somebody needs to get it. At the synagogue I go to here in in Hamilton uh, this year, uh, you you don't have to pay to come. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay to come. If you want to get make a contribution, you make a contribution. And some people have more money than others, uh, and give generously all the time. So it, it ends up working out fine. And it's just one of those weird things when you're a kid to see it and just think, yes. I have yes. to buy a ticket to come to right. synagogue on the biggest holidays of the year. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. The other one is for me over the years, you know, I find with my proximity or distance from Jewish practice and, and con- congregational practice, particularly sometimes there's a high tide and a low tide. There's times where I really feel it and I really want to be there. And there's other times where I don't feel it. And I, I just think, I don't know if this is the, the best way for me to, to do my spiritual work. Um, usually, though, when I get near the high holidays, that feeling comes up again. And I start to feel that, that uh, closeness with everything. And part of that is because there are certain rituals attached, particularly to Yom Kippur, to the Day of Atonement. Um that really ground you, you know, that you, 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 you can't eat for 25 hours. You can't even drink water for 25 hours, that you walk, you don't drive. That was the way I was brought up. And so for me, those really big differences from the rest of the year really wake me up, mm-hmm. and, which is the purpose of it after all, right? And the shofar, the ram's horn blowing at Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year and the and, and the, the traditions around that. I, I love all that. It, it, it is, I, I actually think we have geared our society, even though it's mostly a Christian society, to the idea that the year starts in September. September, maybe October, but that's when a year starts. Harvest is right. in and the seasonal cycle is over. January 1st seems highly arbitrary to me. <laughs> like, right. You're in the dead of winter. Why all of a sudden is this a great idea? It's not yes. even attached to a solstice. It's just boom, here's the new year. <laughs> so pagan-wise, it doesn't work. What what comes up for you when you get near holidays like this one? Well, I uh, because I've ensconced myself more so in Jewish ritual over the last year or two uh, through my learning, which is on a daily basis through teaching. I give a couple classes a week. And also I've started to attend synagogue more often. I, send a, I attend a little shtibel across the street, which is called Mishkan Avram. And a shtibel basically is um, a, sort of a haphazard synagogue, which has come together of generally of a bunch of men, very often over 50 years old. And uh, it's it's very orthodox, very traditional in nature. It's very humble. The kiddishes are fabulous, which is the food that we eat after the service. And a lot of people come to synagogue, apparently, because of the kiddish. Of course. Uh, <clears throat> someone told me uh, there's a, an old adage in Judaism. It, it's challah, not prayer. Okay, so uh, I think a lot of a lot of people respond to the food aspect of it. I was surprised by that, but apparently that's the case. So I'm also I'm excited. Uh, I think the edge has taken off a little bit of the high holidays because I practice more during the year. But the kicker is that I established about five years ago a synagogue of my own, and I call it the Forest Shul or the Forest Synagogue. And essentially what I do is I take about 25 or 30 people into Earl Bales Park, which is a gorgeous park here at Shepherd and Bathurst in Toronto. We follow this trail right to the end, which is on top of a cliff. And there are rocks that are set up. It reminds me of the story of Jacob when he fell asleep, having gathered all the rocks around his head. And we sit on these rocks and people sit wherever they want. And we do a service. Uh, And it's super exciting because we're in nature. So when we come to the part of blowing the shafar, which is the ram's horn, I sort of call that nature on nature. You know, you can imagine mm-hmm. being in the middle of this gorgeous forest, right? And you're right on the abyss, really. And you blow the shofar, and if the sound is clear, it just trails off 
into the nature. It's almost as though the leaves of the trees are gathering the notes and taking it higher. So for me, it's a really beautiful experience. So in the service that you do, you don't do the whole service that is in a synagogue. What, 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 how do you pick and choose right. what to do while you're out there? I'm a really good picker. <laughs> I've been picking for years. Uh, so you, you ask a really good question. I kind of break it up into two or three pieces. We do the traditional Ralph. Um, there are songs that one would find in high holiday liturgy, which are very gripping, you know, which are very touching. Avinu Malkinu is one of them. Avinu Malkinu. And of course, another one is Ununatana Tokef, Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die. So I take those prayers and I incorporate them into my service and people sing and we sing in and around. And once again, it is just a very, very beautiful moment. And, you know, Avina Malkin is the type of song that if you want, it never really has to stop. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> right? a, chant. it's a chant. Yes, it is. Avinu Malkeinu. It's beautiful. Avinu Malkeinu. And then we just keep going and going. Right. And everybody's into it and there are tears streaming down their cheeks. And if we would want, you can do it again, right? Oh, I can do it forever. I believe me. I, know, I walk I around singing it all the time at that point. Beautiful and, song. So there, you said something a little bit before this, though, about being in there and picking and choosing what to do. So Avina Mokenu, but the other one that I love is Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die? Because I, I remember a teaching I learned a, a while ago, which was, let's not take that physically and literally. Not who's going to actually physically die and who's actually going to live. It's what part of us is going to die off and what oh. part of us is going to be born. Oh, nice. Right. So that you look at it in, in terms not of your uh, the ego, your own mortality. Am I the one who's going to die? Who in here is going to die this year? That takes me out of it. If I leave myself in the idea of every year, there are things in us, if we keep growing, that die off. Just like a tree's leaves die off and new leaves come. For a person, there is that uh, opportunity to let something die. Um, uh, a grudge can die, uh, um, a resentment can die, um, attachment to wealth can die, something, anything can die and something can be born out of it. And what, what, what part of you is going to come alive? In nice the that comes? That's a lovely thought. I like that very much, very much. But I do have a question for you. Yes. Um, and I'm looking for your book because I, I'm reading your book I'm slow to read because I read about 10 books at a time. Um, <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, right. It's terrible. But, but you know, that's, that's what I do. That's the best. It's the best. <laughs> Thank you. Um, anyways, you almost died yourself, right? Yeah. So when you read Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die, I understand your explanation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's lovely. And I'm going to incorporate that into my service. But how did you feel when you read Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die after going through that? Um, I felt like... I should stop worrying about it so much. I felt like <clears throat> it's going to happen. You know, it's like Woody Allen's line, right? Death. I get it. It's just not for me. Yeah. Right. 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 <clears throat> um, we all have this thing of the great injustice of dying. And I think if you've <clears throat> been given a diagnosis of something that could kill you, um, even if, and in my case, I was reassured relatively quickly. This this isn't the thing that's going to kill you right now. <clears throat> you know, it'll something will kill you, but this one isn't going to be the one at this moment. And that was within you know three weeks, four weeks of of, of knowing. But in that time, you really have to look at everybody around you and think about who have I loved, 
and who have uh, who has loved me? What kind of work have I put into that? Because that's all that's going to be left. So for me, I just found that it was like, it was no longer something that could have terror attached to it. It was more like a companion piece to what a whole human life is. Uh, I was, I, I read something today from a, uh, a woman I, uh, I've only met a few times here in Hamilton, but her husband died suddenly in his 40s, about f actually five years ago, uh, five years ago this weekend, last weekend. And he was a lovely man. He did brilliant stuff. He, he would find um, vacant warehouses and put on beautiful dinner parties that, that people could come oh, wow. to. So he yeah. was a really interesting guy. He was full of life and the glint. She wrote a beautiful piece about him in Facebook. Um, and I, I wrote back to her to say how beautiful it was, but also that, you know, Stephen Jenkinson in Die Wise says, the human lifespan is not life. It is the human moment in the perpetual constant flow of life. Mm. Mm. Good. Right. So that once you st I started thinking like that, I'd been thinking about the idea of dying since I was, you know, could think. And I, I just thought it was such an cruel and outrageous joke, you know, that God would, you know, as a kid thinking of God as this guy who does stuff. And I think to myself, what, what, what kind of what, what would you do that to somebody for? Like you, you give me life and they go, by the way, I'm taking it away after. Yeah. Like, what are you yeah. nuts? Like, what did I do? I didn't do anything. So, you know, it takes a long time, I think, to evolve out of that kind of pediatric version of what life is and what death is. So when I see I, it, it's, it's different. Yeah. I just want to pick up on this, if you don't mind. And, and if it's too intimate, just tell me. But uh, I think that the high holidays, to answer a previous question of yours, what is it like for me? It's an ominous uh, occasion. Uh, I've done, I've led services on Yom Kippur night, Kol Nidre, and I was standing in front of three, 400 people at Congregation Habonim. And I felt so incredibly humbled um, by the honor and by the moment that we were in. There was a component to it uh, whereby I was thinking about my life versus my eventual demise. Um, I've thought about my sister who passed away, my both my parents. It was a very heavy moment and it was um, very spiritual in nature, however you define that. I'm just curious with you, Ralph, I know there was a time, but prior to those three weeks where, where you actually thought you were gonna leave this earth. So was that in all at all like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Were those feelings similar? Were those thoughts similar? You were, the place you were in, were they similar? Well, what comes to mind is um, in Yom Kippur, we, we do the vidui. We, we knock on our chest. Yeah. We count our sins. We humble ourselves to the idea that we are not to be pointing the finger outward, but to look inside. And I think that one of the things when somebody says, you know, you you might actually not be in good shape here, you might, you might not make it, um, is that it's an accounting. You, you, you know, you have to go, wait a minute, where am I at? What have I done? What haven't I done? Um, so on that level, uh, it's sort of an amplification of that. But on the other level of people and your heart, because knocking on the heart is, is you know, a little breaking of your heart because spirituality cannot enter a person until they have a broken heart. You know, if, you, if you've never been vulnerable that way, it's really hard to get there. Right. Every figure we study in Bibles and scriptures and uh, in Hindu Bhagavad Gita's and there is heartbreak. There is people who have to fall from their grace. The Buddha, a prince, you know, who has who has to make a wake up moment and go, what does it matter? This princely life. It's, it's not for me. So that happens. I think the biggest thing that happened was I still have, yeah, I have four kids. So I was looking at my children's lives and thinking, I, 
this is I'm going to disappoint them. I'm not mm-hmm. going to be around for them. And especially my two youngest at that point were really young, you know, three and one uh, or four and one uh, and two. And, and I just thought, what kind of, you know, they're always going to have this thing. of I, I didn't know my dad. So that yep. heart heartbreak stuff was part, part of it, you know, reading them a story without them realizing that I'm sitting here thinking, this might not be going on very long. So I, I, I liked it for that. Um, you know, I'm still here to talk about it. So who's to know, right? If it had gone the other way, uh, I don't know if I would have been as, had as much equanimity as I, I do in having survived it, right? By but the think, way, there's... So one more thing. The, in, w- Kippur is, is a rehearsal for death. I mean, you dress yeah. in white. You dress in the shroud. You are, like, when, you're, when you die in our religion, you are wrapped in white. You are wrapped in a shroud. And we are to dress in white. And we are to die and be born uh, into our moment again. That that you're you're to finish your business with people. Yeah, Rosh Hashanah. You're supposed to get in touch with them and go. You know what? If I offended you, I'm really sorry. Uh, and I think I did offend you. Uh, you know, or I I I owe you two hundred and fifteen dollars, and I I just realized I have, or I I've avoided paying you. Here's your money. I'm so sorry. It's closure, right? So there is a sort of end, contemplation, denial of self, and then on we go. There's an interesting story that's told in light of what you said about uh, the broken heart. Um, the, the great Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of the Hasidic, Hasidic movement, um, he instructed one of his Talmudim, one of his students, to blow the shofar on the high holidays. His name was Mordechai, and he said, Mordechai, go home and study on the shofar, learn about it, understand the nuances, see what the Kabbalah, the mysticism has to say about it. Sure enough, Mordechai went home and he just ensconced himself in study having to do with the the ram's horn, the shofar. And he wrote down these little pieces that were significant and that he would carry in his pocket on the day of the high holidays themselves so that when he blew them, he could review them quickly and understand what he's doing more intimately. So he comes to Shul and, and he's ready to blow the shofar. The Baal Shem Tov asks him to come up. He reaches into his pocket and the note, the Patek is not there. He, he had lost it. And he looked again, he looked again, you know how we go through all of our yeah. pockets, right? And ultimately he couldn't find the little Patek. He couldn't find the little piece of paper. So he blew the shofar and he tried to remember what he had learned. Once he had finished, he went to the corner of the shul and he sat down and he sobbed and he cried because he felt as though he had disappointed the Baal Shem Tov. He had disappointed the Olam, the congregation, and mostly had disappointed God. And at the end of the service, the Baal Shem Tov found him, Mordechai, sitting in the corner of the synagogue. And he comes over to him and he sees him cry and he sees him sobbing. And he says to him, why are you sobbing? You you blew the shofar in the most beautiful way, perhaps more beautiful than I've ever heard. He says, Rav, he says, I'm so sorry. He says, I I forgot so much of my learning. I had written it down and I just couldn't find that little petek. And the Balshantov sees that his heart had been broken by that. He says, you should know something. He says, God responds firstly and foremostly to those people whose hearts are broken. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why you did such a beautiful job. And that really touched me because I had mentioned in our last podcast together that my sister Javi's husband had been murdered mm-hmm. and uh, she, uh, her heart is broken, was broken, still is. And with she tried to turn that into a positive in terms of her relationship with God and her prayer. And I think she's done a terrific job of it, really. Mm-hmm. So hard. Yeah, to say the least. So hard. So sad. Yeah. You know, for me, one of the things that's a real challenge is the way we've written the stories of Torah and the way they've been used is 
dualistically that there is a God and there is us. And this is a conversation. And I know you and I have talked about this before, but it's problematic for me in that I, I don't, I'm an, I've really gravitated towards a non-dualistic view of just even the use of the word uh, uh, God, that it, it's just a placeholder. Uh, but what has happened, I think, is that it has also allowed us to remove ourselves from the uh, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls the interbeing of life, that we are all completely connected in a web of life. Uh, I was speaking to a, a group of um, Jewish people from Owen Sound uh, last week, and I uh, was talking about eco-spirituality, just like you going into the forest, right, so that people can connect to the actual earth they stand on when they talk these things, and that the idea that you have to go into a building uh, where, you know, you can sort of, you know, rent a God, <laughs> just go in, go to the building <laughs> and then go home, uh, you know, get out a lease. Um, it doesn't work for me very well. And when I think of a non-dualistic approach to God, I think that everything is God, everything. Every, this conversation, the moment together, um, the tree that breathes outside and breathes life into me and I breathe life into it, the interactions. You know, uh, Sylvia Burstein, who is well-studied as a Buddhist and, well, and is also a, an Orthodox Jew, she had a beautiful definition of karma that I, I, I keep talking about lately, which is that every single thing that has happened in the universe had to happen the way it happened for the moment right now where you and I are talking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that our responsibility is the next moment. Because mm -hmm. that's going to dictate what happens a thousand years from now. And I love that because then I'm, I, I, it connects me to this day of atonement in a different way. It connects me to this renewal in a different way because I have to think about what my next moment is as much as reflect before I think about it, take reflection on what's gone on this year, right? But I, it, my conversation is internal and it is ecosystem. That's why when it's like, who's gonna live and who's gonna die can be in an ecosystem. It's like, well, am I gonna live? Am I gonna die? Yes. Or it can be an ecosystem of what is going to live and what is going to die, because everything is part of the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's a lovely thought. It's a lovely thought. I just want to add to it, um, we're talking about the various different approaches to the high holidays. There is a lot of discussion about the idea of being Adam Lamako that on the high holidays and prior and during the 10 days of repentance, because it is a 10 day holiday, more or less starts with Rosh Hashanah. Then you have those few days in between where you're introspective, where you really do your very best to understand how you were this past year to God, which is the Bein Adam Lamako, how you were Bein Adam Lachavera, which is between you and other people. And there's a third piece that is seldomly talked about, and it kind of overlaps with what you're saying. And I've been repeating it as much as I can possibly in Shul and Shabbat and other such places. There's a concept called Bein Adam La'atzmi. And that is my relationship between me and myself. And within traditional Judaism, the Shiva world that I went to, there's not a lot of introspection in that way, Ralph. There's not. There's very, very little discussion and thought about um, have I embraced myself, you know? Have I responded this past year? That old adage of be as good to yourself as you are to your best friend, right? Which means love yourself. Know who you are. Understand your gifts. Understand your talents. Understand, understand what God has given you. And by the same token, look at the things that you really have to work on within yourself and develop them. So that's also a, a very, very big piece of the high holidays. Um, which I focus on, and again, which I try to point out to other people that they should be doing as well. So, but why do you think then in the in the Orthodox world and in the studying the yeshiva world, 
that that's not something that is cultivated? Why, why yeah. isn't it? I, I think that world became so God-centric. Right. And, and that's fine, but not when you forget about yourself. Very often I'll be in orthodox circles and I'll hear people say, well, you know, the self is not important. That's not a Jewish concept. It's not at all. I mean, there's a classic thing in Judaism. Why did the Jews keep complaining when they were walking through the desert? They had water from the sky. They had bread. They had God's uh, security. Uh, they had everything they needed. And one of the answers that's given, same thing with Adam and Eve. Why did they do the one thing they weren't supposed to do? Similar answers given, which is, you know what? Thank you for all of this. But I, I want to bruise my elbows and I want to scrape my knees. You know, my existential needs, if you will. I want to understand who I am. I'm an author. I'm a poet. I'm a speaker. I'm a communicator. I want to get out there and do it. And I'm really happy that God has given me all this manna, right, and taking care of me. But I wanted to go do a gig. That's who I am. That's what I'm supposed to develop and bring to this world. I think that the Jewish, the yeshiva were lost sight of all of that. And it just became too God-centric. And within that process, forgot about ourselves. And perhaps that's why I find myself saying, okay, can we stop saying God did, said this and God did that and God wants this and God wants... Because I think it takes responsibility out of us, but it also takes uh, a relationship that if one of the, if not the central thing about our Jewish relationship to God is that it's unknowable, then what are we talking about? How do you know what God wants if it's unknowable? You've already had the contradiction right there. Just leave that part alone. It's none of your business. Just your business is to be it, it, to to actualize yourself in a in a in a way that uh, is a healthy addition to what comes next, as opposed to a cancerous addition to what what comes next. That's enough work for a human being in this short little life that we have, right? Sure. Yeah. By by the way, for your own edification, when you study the book of Devorim which is the fifth book in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. It's essentially Moses giving a speech to the Jewish people. So last week we did Kitavo, and in Kitavo he talked about the curses and the blessings, the curses if you follow God's words, the blessings if you don't. But you will find almost, maybe maybe only a couple of times, you'll find the phrase, Vayedaber Hashem Amosheh that God spoke to Moshe saying, you don't hear, you don't read that at all as you would in the prior books. In Devorim, it's Moses talking. And I think it kind of speaks to what you're saying. So it becomes a human talking to humans at that point? Yes, very much so. Yeah, yeah, he's standing on the mountain and he's talking to the Jewish people and it's him to them. Hmm. Interesting. So we bring it back down to earth. Uh, there is this uh, ladder we climb in the high holidays, I think. Um, I always like the last service of Yom Kippur. In the, uh, uh, there's an intensity to that. You haven't had anything to eat or drink. And uh, I learned... Well, relatively early on, if you don't spend the entire time staring at a clock going, what am I going to eat? You're going to have a much better experience. Yes. Uh, you just keep yourself busy doing what, what, what's there. But there are these, you know, ritualized, rep rep repetitive cycles that bring you closer. And it, it reminds me of the kind of mystical uh, parts of religions, you know, the Sufis, the Hasidim, that... When you said before, you know, there's not the part about your relationship to you. In those, it seems the idea is to to lose yourself. Um, but then I don't see that as not having a relationship to you. I, I think it's, I, I guess I go to the Buddhist way there, because I, I think if it, our biggest issue is that we construct an ego of who we are. And we cling to it and we resist others and we stay in our shell of I am Ralph, not I am that I am. <laughs> I am Ralph. And <clears throat> it leaves us lesser, not more, mm -hmm. to just continually with the biggest barrier to a spiritual thing, which is why we're talking about the breaking of the heart for spirit, is the ego. If one cannot bend their knee to what we're going through, 
then they will have hubris. And we now, I think, live in a very, uh, a society and, and a time of great hubris where the individual is, is to be worshiped and the individual's uh, uh, so-called achievement, i.e. material uh, achievement, uh, is the point of this exercise. And we, you know, in the United Kingdom right now, in their health ministry, they have a, a sub-ministry of literally of loneliness. That's correct, yes. yes. Right? So that's where we've gone to, is that we no longer have extended family. We no longer have a sharing or gifting economy. We, it, it is accumulation and extraction. And so, you know, one of the hypocrisies that young people would talk about when I was young and we were rejecting a lot about religion, for instance, was going to a synagogue and seeing, or a church or anywhere and seeing people in, in very expensive clothing, you know, making their statement that they have arrived. And the synagogue itself, you know, becoming the sort of, you know, which synagogue is the bigger and better synagogue as a, as a reflection of, of, of that ego state. And I love the idea that you're taking people into the woods because it, then the, all that's gone. It's not a beautiful no. <laughs> synagogue. It's a beautiful world and, and all that's gone. There's a lot of interesting discussion that we could take out of this. Uh, you talk about the beautiful synagogue, you know, versus the nature of what we'll be doing. I asked the rabbi recently, Rabbi Shlomo Gamara, who's a very big Talmud Chacham, very big scholar in, in Talmud. I said, Rabbi, you know, the temple was uh, pretty uh, opulent. And there are many synagogues um, in our communities that are also aesthetically very, very wealthy, rich, affluent, if you will. Why don't we cut that in half, let's say, and build a lovely synagogue, not not one that's imbued with various frescoes on the ceiling and so on, and instead use the other money towards the betterment of humankind, you know, poor people and so on. He said, that's a very good question. He didn't really give me an answer, but I uh, sometimes it's satisfying just to hear from a scholar that you asked a good question. And I felt good <laughs> about that. <laughs> but but I often I often wonder about that, Ralph. You know, you, you'll find that some of the most inspiring places to pray, to reach out to God, to have those spiritual moments are environments that would be considered very plain, very simple, not opulent in any way whatsoever. And that in itself seems to help one reach out to God or whatever their religious or spiritual predilection is. So, um, yeah, you make a good point. And that's really the experience that we have in the forest. You know, the Breslover Hasidim, it's a sect of Hasidim. The leader was Rav Nachman Mabres of the 1700s. And he's very well respected nowadays. They uh, literally, many of them would go into the forest early in the morning and pray to God and do somersaults and yellow to God and hang from trees. And in fact, you saw sort of a representation of that in the uh, series Stissel. Did you watch? Stissel? Yeah, yeah, sure. You remember when they were in the forest doing all those somersaults yeah. and acrobat? That that was representation of wrestling. Well, there's that story of the kid, you know, with the rabbi, his son keeps going out into the forest and then coming back to the house. And he's like, why don't you, like, why don't you to pray with me? And he just, next day, kid comes home goes straight out into the forest and then comes home and goes, okay, what are you doing out there? Yeah. And he says, <clears throat> I'm praying out there. Well, why didn't you pray in here with me? He goes, well, the reception's better out there. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Right? I love that. Yeah. <clears throat> because that, that, that's the thing is, is we have also uh, depaganized our religions, our Judeo-Christian religions. We, the, in, in the Christian world, particularly there was the murder of thousands of women as witches because they were connected to the natural cycles of life and the solstice and the menstruation cycles and the moon. And they still found these to be sacred. And what we've done is we've made only this thing called God sacred. And 
it is removed from the idea that everything in indigenous culture, everything has spirit, everything. And even in, in, in Christianity, you can find that, you know, when Jesus spoke about, I am in that piece of wood, I am in that, under that rock, I am, I am everything, I am everywhere. That's what I think, talk about when I'm talking about a non-dualistic approach to God, that everything, if everything is sacred, then how can we do what we're doing right now? How can we literally declare war on the earth? It, it, the, the, the most damaging line there is, man has dominion over nature, not stewardship, dominion. And so it's not a coincidence that the, the, the burning of women and the depaganizing of, of Christianity and certainly of Judaism and the rationalism that followed is also completely concurrent with the rise of capitalism. They both happen at the same time for the same reason, for the same accumulation of power and wealth away from people. That, that everything around you is not sacred. Is That's how we live now. Everything is profane. So we, we yearn to go to some building to get it done. We yearn for a aha moment. I once did a TV series with, with a good friend of mine, Alan Novak, and it was called Five Seekers. And we took five people who had given up on religion and gave them different experiences in Sedona, Arizona, and in Cortez Island, BC. And a lot of these things were outside of the norm of religion as we know it, but were spiritual experiences. And what I realized with many of the people, uh, you know, some of the five people was what they wanted was aha. They wanted a bolt of lightning to hit them and everything would be fine. But what they didn't want is the hard work and the slow grind <laughs> which sometimes feels like you're on the right track and sometimes feels like what am i doing this is like i feel nothing you know when you talked about at the beginning about kiddish about people after the uh, service eating it's not that they're gluttons it's that food is 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 essence food is is life and to share that with people and to talk and say, how you been? How's it going? Yeah, very much. I agree. Yeah. That's community. And yes. community is, is one of the two major functions of religion, right? So, Yeah, we just get a kick out of eating herring and what we call nothings. You know what nothings are? Well, I, when I went to Ashkenazi Synagogue at Beth Shalom, yeah. I, I'd look at the... My, my aunt was a, a, a pastry chef, but in Morocco, it was French pastries, right? Yes. Eclairs, Petit Four... So I'm looking at this stuff and I go, what is that? And the guy beside me goes, it's, it's a nothing. I said, no, no, what is it? <laughs> it's, right. it's called a nothing. It's, it's literally called. And then I, I, I yeah. bit it and I went, this is awful. This is, there's nothing in it. He goes, this is exactly what I'm telling you. Right. But the idea is you take a piece of schmaltz herring Oof. Or, or, or marinated herring and you put it on top of the nothing. Maybe with a little bit of tibula, which is onions, and you bite into it, and it is an Ashkenazi it's something. Yeah, it, 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 it becomes something. Yeah. Listen, I want I want to ask you if I can show you my uh, my shofar. Yes, please. Um, and I'll, and I'll remind people that herring is 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 so not Sephardic; it's almost unbelievable. Right, but you will find them now at Sephardic Kiddush, which is so heartbreaking. I'd rather see sardines. It, it's the host culture has had that impact. It, I'm sorry, you know. You should be. <laughs> I apologize. So, 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 Ralph, we've been talking a little bit about the shofar. Uh -huh. This is this is one shofar. This is a simple shofar. It's a ram's horn. And uh, the idea behind it is that uh, Rosh Hashanah is like a coronation. It's really uh, the birthday of the birth of the world. And therefore, like we would at a coronation, which we will see in, uh, I guess, a month or two with King Charles, we would blow a horn. We would blow the ram's horn. And this mm -hmm. kind of represents, too, when Abraham was about to slaughter his son. And instead, the angels came down and said, no, 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 don't slaughter your son. You know, slaughter, slaughter this goat. So th this is uh, a remembrance of that. So I have this shofar here and I'll blow it in one second. 
And then I have this shofar here. Now you should, for people just listening, it, it is much longer and it, it curves and, and turns. And it, it's three times the size of the small shofar, which you can hold easily with one hand. This one you must hold with two. Yes, exactly. This is what's called a Yemenite shofar, this one here. And of course, it would come from the Yemenite community. Um, and it is a really a beautiful, beautiful piece. People who are into animal rights and so on, they're not uh, very uh, happy with this stuff. But that being said, so let me blow a sound from here. Now, Ralph, do you know the sounds that are that are blown on the shofar? Tukia. Yeah. Trua. Shavar, shavarim. Shavarim. Terua. Terua. Yeah. Tukia, Shavarim, Trua, and Tukia Gadol. Uh, do you know what they represent? You tell me. Yeah. So the, they all, they kind of represents like sounds of tears, the crying of the Jew, and then the Shavarim, which is the three little breaks where we, oh, we stand up, mm. right? We look around. We actually see that the world can be bright, you know? And then the long, long one at the end, the Kia Gadola, which again is meant to wake everybody up, you know, to see who they are as a human being, to see what this world is all about, to see the beauty of it and see our tremendous potential. So I'll, I'll blow a couple of sounds. Usually what happens is someone will go, Tukia, do you want Tukia. to do Javarim. I'm not hearing it. Um, there's no audio. Oh, there's no audio? Yeah, when you blow it, it, it goes quiet. Because I think it's above the range of what the Zoom can Oh, up. oh okay. I'll <laughs> well, that's that. Tequila. Javarim. Tarua. Anyways. I guess you won't be able to hear it. You can go to YouTube and you'll hear it. But this is a shofar. These are shofars. I know. As soon as you did it, it just went silent. And it was just like, oh, the, the Lord has raised his hand against. <laughs> it's when you said animal rights, you just, you know, the whole is thing. Is that what it was? Yeah, it went karmic nuts at that point. You know, Nobody knew where to go with it. So we, we can't play that. Learn something new about Zoom. <laughs> well, we used to have uh, one guy in the Sephardic synagogue uh, always an older man uh, who was a, he was a very quiet man. But every uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, he was the man. Like you didn't even think he had it in him. And we would all literally time it on our watches when he'd start, especially Gadol, right? Like the big, long, last sonorous note that would just go on and on. But he could he nailed it every time and we just well, loved it you know <laughs> yeah you, you know what that reminds me of ralph i remember when i went to uh, uh north of winnipeg i went to a reserve there oh, and yeah. i was i was part of a drum uh, session a drum uh, ritual that was going on and i had been speaking to somebody prior to the drumming and he told me about his really difficult life how poor he was and Times were really hard for him. He was an alcoholic and all of this stuff. He had lost his son. And and then sure enough, he gets up and he goes over to the drum with about five or six other guys. And they begin playing their liturgy, if you will. Mm -hmm. And you know what I thought about, Ralph? I thought about sometimes in our community, the Jewish community, it's like the more affluent you are, the more honors you get. Right? Right. And I'm sure that's not local just to our people. But I thought in the indigenous community, they have it right. It, it, they give honor to everybody. And that was a beautiful, beautiful moment for me and a very important learning moment as well. Well, in the indigenous culture, you'll see the architecture of ritualist circles. Yes. Right? It's not sage on a stage. It's not everybody faced one way. It's a circle. And cir circles flatten hierarchies. Nobody is top dog anymore. Correct. You're all around the same fire. So I asked a, a friend of mine, indigenous friend of mine, he's from uh, the States. And I said, I told him about how we, we do our, our death rituals at our Shiva and how we stay together for upwards to a week, if it happens to fall on the right day that way. Um, 
and uh, tell stories about the person and don't say goodbye. Say, I'll see you, see you soon and all that stuff. And I said, what do you guys do? And he said, we keep a fire going for, I can't remember how many days. And we sit around that fire and tell stories about that person mm. in a circle. Mm. And I just thought, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, listen, I don't know, two weeks from now, we'll, 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 we'll see if we can do one and maybe we'll be in the middle of it all by then. Um, yeah. And right now the rain is pouring down around me and the thunder is clapping. So it's Getting God's way of telling me. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I just got to get that thing out of my head. Yeah. Um, do it. So I'm happy you've recovered from, from COVID. And uh, thank I, you. I hope you feel better soon. Uh, thank I, you very you much. You already do, I, I'm sure. Uh, and is there somewhere where people who want to be part of that walk in the forest can get in touch with you? Mm -hmm, yeah, they they can either go to my Facebook page, which is Avram Rosenzweig, um, or they can go to my website, avramrosenzweig.com. And I guess the final thing would be avram.rosenzweig at gmail.com. Okay, excellent. And for me, it's ralphbenmergie.ca, and everything you need to know is there. Oh, it's really raining. I'm very impressed. It's preparing um, you. It is. It, it is the cleansing. Well, I hope I didn't put too many plants on the front porch there. That won't work. <laughs> um, you take care of yourself, and uh, we'll do more. Yeah, and, and, and the chauffeur. Put it on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> we'll figure it out that way. And we'll do more of Not That Kind of Rabbi real soon, all right? Thank you, Ralph. Take care of yourself, too. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>